Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward Negev. This is God's word. You may be seated. Hey, Robert, could you go back to the announcement slides and put the uh, the prayer request slide up there? <clears throat> and while he's doing that, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Genesis chapter 11 and 12 this morning and uh, get that announcement sheet out and inside of it you'll find a sermon outline that you can use as we go through this and while you're doing that just a reminder if you came in late because of uh, the, the special circumstances of being over here rather than our normal auditorium and place of worship we do not have the yellow prayer request cards out if you have a prayer request that you would like our church family to know about and for it to be put in the uh, in the announcement sheet for next week as well as to have our shepherds and our ministry staff praying over it you can text my personal cell phone number. That's what that 2416723 number goes to. It goes to my... You would like uh, to, to have a prayer request read to the congregation and then shared with the, the shepherds and the staff and put in the announcement sheet. Text me at that number and we'll read those at the end of the, uh, the assembly, at the end of the sermon this morning. We'll go back to the, uh, the sermon title slide. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that we have this place that we can come to and worship you and concentrate all of our faculties, all of our focus, all of our strengths, bring all of our intelligence and imagination to bear on these texts that reflect, Father, the greatness of your presence in all of creation. And we pray, Father, that as we go through the life of Abraham beginning today, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Father, how his life touches ours all of these years removed. And that the things that Abraham faced are the things that we face, and that the things that Abraham went through as trials are so much the same kinds of trials that we face in this day. And so we increase our faith, 
and help us with our doubts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To sort of um, set the direction I want to go for the next uh, 20 minutes or so, I want to begin with two quotes from two different authors who were very, very good friends with each other in the past century. Uh, they were part of a group known as the Inklings. Uh, one is J.R.R. Tolkien. The other one is C.S. Lewis. Uh, at the end, we'll start with uh, Tolkien. At the end of his trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, there are two hobbits, Frodo and Sam, who have finally returned to the Shire but are now about to separate. It's, uh, it's an incredibly sad time for Sam, who can't believe that after all of the things that Frodo has been through to save the Shire, he is not going to enjoy life in the Shire, in, in his own home, and among his own people ever again. But here's the thing. After all of the wounds and all of the injury that Frodo suffered because of his love for the Shire and his desire to save it and his desire to save the world of Middle-earth, he cannot stay there any longer. And so Frodo replies to Sam and says, So I thought too once. But I've been too deeply hurt, Sam. I tried to save the Shire, and it has been saved, but not for me. It must often be so, Sam. When things are in danger, someone has to give them up, lose them, so that others may keep them. And if you know the story of you know, Frodo leaves and goes to this place called, you know, in Tolkien's imagination, the Grey Havens. And then the second one comes from uh, C.S. Lewis' spiritual autobiography. It's a book called Surprised by Joy. If you've never read it, it's a very, very excellent book. It's about his journey from atheism to theism to full faith in Christ and life as a Christian. And during his, his life, even as a, as a young boy, Lewis writes that he experienced what he called the stabs of joy that were both a sense of joy... Uh, he, the first one he remembers is his brother had a, a, a coffee, uh, actually it was a, a, a cookie tin in England that he had made a garden out of, and he remembered this sense, this stab of joy that he felt in seeing it, and that it was a sense of longing for something that you can't quite possess. And these were the experiences, these stabs of joy that filled him with joy, but it was, he was longing for something down the road that kept him on this path towards faith in God. And towards the end of this, this autobiographical sketch of his conversion, Lewis writes, When we are lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. A great matter. He who first sees it cries, Look! The whole party gathers round and stares. But when we have found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. They will encourage us, and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up. But we shall not stop and stare, or not much. Not on this row, though their pillars are of silver and their lettering of gold, for we would be at Jerusalem. Now, what is in common in both of these works, one is fiction and one is autobiographical, is a description of what it means to be on a quest. A quest puts you on a road on which you can never re remain the same. When you go on a quest... You are going down a road, down a path in which you're going to experience things, you're going to sacrifice things, you're going to suffer things, and as you go down that road, sometimes you don't come back, but even if you do, you never come back the same. And if there's a word that describes the life of Abraham, it is a quest. It is a faith quest. And looking all of these years after the life of Abraham and reflecting on what it means for Abraham's life to be put down in Scripture the way that it was, the writer to the church, 
the, the Hebrews letter writing to a, an unknown church, that writer says in chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, he says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go a place to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And then if you drop down to verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were what? Longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Now, as we, we get into the life of Abraham this morning, uh, this introduction to Abraham's life is going to give us three things to think about. The first is, to understand the life of Abraham, we have to understand the context of, of his life in the Bible. And then number two, we have to go back and look at this call that he received while he was still in Ur of the Chaldees. And then Abraham instructs us, even from the very beginning of his life, and the story of Abraham as it's found in the Bible, instructs us on our own personal conversion. But let's begin with that context. As we study the life of Abraham in the coming weeks, there are two things that I really want you to never forget. The first one is this. The story of Abraham was written down when, people, when the people of God were stuck between the desert and the promised land. The story of Abraham was written down when the people of God were stuck between the desert and the promised land. They are stuck in the desert for four decades because they lost faith in the Word of God. One of the ways the Exodus from Egypt was described was God calling Israel out of Egypt and to follow him to a land that he would show them, to a promised land. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 basically says that that exacts that exact wording, that out of Egypt I have called my son. And God called them out of a land that had been their home and to follow him to a land that he would show them. But you know the story by the time we get to Numbers chapter 13, they falter, those spies go up into the land, they come back with a report that the land is great, that God's word description of the land can be trusted, but God's word about leading them into it and helping them to establish themselves in the land and that land of promise to become a land of fulfillment for them, that's the word that they didn't believe in. And so they faltered, they rebelled against God's word, now they are in the desert for 40 years as God creates a new generation to enter the land and they are reminded at this point, as they're going through this desert, they are reminded of Abraham and Abraham's faith to this impossible word, it would appear, to leave his home and to go to a land that he would show them. So context one is to be reminded that Abraham, like them, lives in, and we say this a lot, it's, it's terminology I hope it, we're becoming familiar with here, Abraham lives in a world of thorns and thistles. He lives in a cursed world. In Genesis 1 through 11, what we have is a retelling of the story of what happened to the world and why the world is not the way that it was intended to be and what happened to humans when faith left the scene. Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. God curses the world with thorns and thistles, and he punishes the first couple. Cain kills Abel, 
The world becomes so corrupt by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6 that it grieves God in his heart that he made it and made humans to inhabit it in the first place. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race, how it had become evil on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That is a very pessimistic statement <laughs> about human beings. We tend to live in a culture that believes that we're always getting better, that we're somehow making advancement. God, in telling the truth about humans in Genesis 6, says the inclination of their heart is towards evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Well, the, this, this part of the story is where the Noahic flood comes in and the destruction of all humanity with the exception of the family of Noah and Noah himself. But humanity is deeply flawed, and it, it, humanity has fallen. And it's not long until we run into the Tower of Babel, and humanity is building this, this tower, this, this ziggurat, you know, this sort of a, a squared-off pyramid to get into the face of God and to get face-to-face -face with God. But God confuses the human language and scatters them across the earth. Now, it's at the end of chapter 11 that we enter into chapter 12, and the story of Abraham takes place. The story of Abraham takes place in a world where there is danger and there is threat and there is peril and there is risk and there is death all because of sin and all because of sin. And remember, Genesis 1 through 11 when studying Abraham. And this brings us to the second context in mind, that Abraham is not only living in a world of thorns and thistles. He is having to live out faith in a world where there are all of these bad, pessimistic things happening. But humanity, in the context of Abraham, has come once again to a dead end. This is the importance of those genealogies in Genesis 1 through 11. As you know, the Bible begins with the couple, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve have two sons initially, Cain and Abel. And you know the story, these two boys, after they are removed from the garden, they are uh, worshiping God, and God has favor for Abel and not for Cain, and Cain becoming jealous kills Abel, leaving only the son Cain. But by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, specifically verses 25 and 26, Adam and Eve have another son by the name of Seth. Now there is a Seth. Last verse of Genesis chapter 4, look at, look at the screen. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. And really great names back in the Old Testament. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Circle those words on your Bible or write them down. And people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now remember that line. Now at the end of the genealogy of Seth in Genesis chapter 5, we discover the next big name, which is Noah. Noah becomes the father of Sham and Ham and Japheth. And Shem, in chapter 11, becomes the father of Terah. Now, Genesis 11, beginning in verse 27, this is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran becomes the father of Lot. When his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Some important facts. Now, in, in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, Stephen's given the speech. And what he reminds us is that the call of this family happened while they were in Ur of the Chaldeans, or Ur of the Chaldees, before, before they ended up in, in Haran. 
Now, what is significant about that is that the call comes to these people, to Abraham in particular, while they are living in the land where astrology is, is in, its, in its zenith of development in the ancient world. Not only that, you have Sarai, who the, the, the name Sarai is sort of connected to the name Saratu, which is the name of the wife of the moon god in that particular part of the world, whose name was Shin. And then not only that, you have this, this other wife by the name of Milcah, whose name is connected to Milkato, which is the daughter of the moon god. And so what we have here from the end of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 11 is you have this family line of Seth. This is the family line that began to call on the name of the Lord. The very last verse of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 26. They called on the name of the Lord. By the time this family line, we get to them at the end of chapter 11, they have adopted and have been absorbed into the land and the, and the religion and, and, and the way of life that is saturated with idols. And so now the human line has kind of hit a cul-de-sac again. And the last family to know God has hit a wall. And sort of the metaphor for this is that Sarah is barren. Now it's here that we hear the call of Abraham. In Acts chapter 7, it tells us that the call came while Abraham was in the Ur of the Chaldees before they moved to Haran. And the family moves to Haran and settles and Terah dies father of Abraham, and, and the call comes again to Abraham, and the call shakes up everything. In Genesis chapter 12, in verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your family's household to the land that I will show you. Now, the NIV kind of clean cleans it up a little bit. Uh, you go to some of the more literal translations, one in particular, Everett Fox, that tries to retain some of the Hebrew sense. It is, go you forth of Ram. It's, get yourself out of that place and go to this place that I'm going to show you. It's imperatival language. It is get out of there. Get yourself gone. Go you forth from that land. It is God speaking in very terse language to Abraham and telling him, get on the quest. And this call is to Abraham's will. Abraham does not know where he is going to go, does he? He doesn't even know how he's going to get there. But this call, get you forth, get out, get thee out of that land to the land that I will show you, is a call to Abraham's will. Will he do it or will he not? Now think about some of the implications of this call in the way that it happened. It would be like me calling Ben Bailey up and saying to Ben, I want you to get your family and put them in the minivan and start driving. And Ben says, okay, but where are we going? And I say, well, don't worry about that. I'll let you know when you get there. And Ben goes, okay, which way do you want me to go? And I say, don't worry about that, just start driving. Now, to obey the call of God is to give up control of your own life. That's what this call, what it, it triggers in Abraham. When God calls Abraham, it is a call to his will. It is a call to, to his, his personal will and interest in life. And to obey it or not will depend on whether or not Abraham wants to retain that sense of security by having his hands on the will of the management of his own life. Now, one of the things I'd like for us to do this morning as, as we, we get into this study is to put to rest the trump card that we sometimes have up our sleeve called our comfort zones. Comfort zones, my friends, do not require faith. 
They do not require faith. Great faith never came from comfort zones. In fact, comfort zones are the very things that keep us from stretching our faith and discovering new and wonderful and bold things about God because we're seeing God in different circumstances and in, in different, different contexts in our life. But great faith never came from comfort zones. And one of the big issues of Genesis 1 through 11 is whether or not humans are going to trust God's word or will they trust themselves. There's uh, this really great commentary on the book of, of Genesis by Walter Brueggemann. And, and Brueggemann writes that faith as a response, that is, as we saw in James, that faith is something that you do. Faith as a response is the capacity to embrace that announced future. And with such passion that the present can be relinquished for the sake of that future. When God calls you to him through the gospel, when God calls you to his heaven to spend eternity with him, to be to be forgiven of your sins and to, you know, are you going to repent at the possibility of those sins being forgiven so that you can find yourselves being able to embrace God's future and the present is not holding you back? It is this increasing capacity to respond in faith to God while waiting for the promises to be fulfilled that sit at the heart of the Abraham story. Now, you might remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said that there were a couple of things I wanted you to remember as we study Abraham. The first is to remember that the Abraham story was written during the time that the people of God, Israel, was stuck between the desert and the promised land. And Abraham is, is teaching them to trust God with all of their heart. The second thing is, is this. The Abraham story was written down for people of faith who live in a fallen world awaiting the resurrection. That's us. We too live in this reality gap between the way the world is and what eternity with God will be how it will be experienced and what that will all be about in the future. Is God's future, that promise that comes to us in Christ Jesus, so rich and so bold and so colorful and so captivating and so compelling that we are willing to obey the call of God, to follow Him and to trust Him even though we don't see the end of the quest, that we don't see the end of the road, that we don't see that end, right now in this moment is it so compelling that we're willing to relinquish everything in order to trust god to trust god and to arrive at his side at the end of the journey the call of abraham out of the forest of idols and putting him on the path that brings him back to us is all about our own conversion Genesis 1 through 11 shows us that spiritually speaking, the candle of human spirituality is burning down and it's about to be extinguished. That last family to call on the name of God is, is, is at a dead end. And the last line of humans to call on, 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 on God, that line of Seth, is now living and dominated by, by idols. But in faith, Abraham travels and arrives at this great tree of Moreh at Shechem, which is probably a place of idol worship. It's in the land of the Canaanites. And that's where we read this very hope-filled verse, Genesis 12, 8. And there he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. So everything that was nearly lost beginning at Seth and calling on the name of the Lord is now being reversed and returned in Abraham to a man of faith calling on the name of the Lord. You, you know, 
A Abraham is, is, is basically a foreshadowing of a greater Abraham that's going to come into, that came into the world. There was another one who heard the call of God, and as a Hebrew writer tells us that when he heard that call, he said, yes, there's been this body that has been prepared for me. I will go, speaking of the Messiah. And it is, it is the Messiah, it's Jesus of Nazareth who leaves all of the comfort, all of the harmony, all of the perfection of heaven and goes on a quest that is going to leave him injured, it's going to leave him wounded in order to save the world. And that's where this story begins with us, is in recognizing that this, this one in whom Abraham was just a foreshadowing came to save us from all of our sins and through great injury and wounding to himself allowed us to get onto this road, this, this quest for our own faith of, of ending up in God's own heaven, for that to be a possibility and a reality for us so that we can find ourselves growing every day closer to God in obeying that call to come and to follow him. If there are some ways that we can bless you this morning in terms of prayer or sitting with our shepherds and, and being counseled by them or with our staff, we're going to sing a song of praise right now, and some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there are ways that we can minister to you this morning, we want you to come down as we stand and praise God together. Redeemed how I love to proclaim and redeemed by the blood of redeemed.